a busy old day on your radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. People with money have all the same problems. They have addiction, they have marriage problems, they have personality problems, they argue too much, they lose their temper too much. All of the things that happen to people, regular, ordinary, everyday people, happen to people with money and and there are some things that money actually makes worse. And then at 20 hours, I got the call to say that they'd found him in a morgue in Ukraine, in Kiev. And uh, it was a real shock, you know, because he always, always came home. He had nine lives, had the luck of the Irish. And what do you think of the uh, people on Twitter who responded to the to your own report, I think it was, when they said the World Cup is going to be the fire Festival and Woodstock 99 rolled into one? Let's wait and see. I think it will be a very different World Cup. And we'll start in the afternoon on the Ray Darcy show when the Disney dream isn't what it seems. Abigail Disney was Ray's guest. Now, Abigail Disney is a descendant of entertainment royalty. Uh, her great uncle was the legendary Walt Disney. He co-founded Disney with his brother Roy and Roy is Abigail's grandfather. Um, can you imagine growing up with full access to the happiest place on earth? The dream of so many kids and so many Disney fans. Well, Disneyland was a home away from home for Abigail, who joins me now from our Cork studio to talk about how sometimes the American dream isn't always as it seems, as outlined in her new documentary due to premiere at the Cork Film Festival tomorrow. The documentary is called The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. And Abigail, as I say, is in our Cork studio. Good afternoon, Abigail. Good afternoon. So this is sort of a homecoming, well, at least a holiday homecoming. For sure. (laughs) Yes. Um, So your family have a long relationship with Ireland and in particular West Cork. Yes, and I I actually predate even that for my family because I came here for the first time in 1982, right as I graduated from college to live with a family and work as their au pair. Ah. (laughs) <laughs> and then my parents in the late 80s, early 90s bought a house down here and uh, I've been back ever since, at least once a year. Right. Congratulations on the documentary. Um, it's, Thank it's, you. it's thought-provoking and I imagine it's going to upset some people, but we'll get to that in a moment. First, let's, <laughs> let's establish your genealogy. <laughs> okay. Your uh, grandfather, Roy, and your dad was Roy as well, the, but yes. the first Roy and his brother Walt set up Disneyland. Now, how much do you know about the chats that they had before it happened and what led to the starting of the company? Well, there's, you know, in a family like mine, there's always lore yes. <laughs> that gets yes. passed down rather readily. So there were a lot of stories that I got from my father and my grandfather about how things happened and so forth. And, you know, it was, if you imagine a world before Disneyland, it was a crazy thing to do. You know, it was crazy to say, I'm going to buy a bunch of land in the middle of the orange orchards down there where nobody goes in Orange County and, and build a permanent, basically circus fair carnival kind of place. And it will be clean and you will be safe there, which, you know, in those days, you weren't necessarily all that clean at a carnival or a circus or or that safe. And, uh, and they did it. They did it with every last penny they had. And they borrowed even more than that, and then they they sold half an interest in it to ABC Network, believe it or not, before they opened it. They were really sure that this would work, and it did. And you, as a child, uh, hanging out with your grandfather, uh, was there sort of a, a Disney family entrance to the park? <laughs> no Disney family entrance, but my, my grandmother was a, oh, he was such a lovely man. He was soft and gentle and sweet and loving and uh, he would take us with him sometimes when he had work to do or someone to meet with so we would go in along the side of Main Street USA Mm. that was sort of where he would park and there'd be people having their breaks you know from their work 
uh, as they call it, on stage. They call off stage and on stage, or backstage mm. rather, and on stage. Cast members and yes, yeah, yeah, cast yeah. members. And uh, so we would, you know, they would love my grandfather. They all called him Roy, and he would know all about their wives and their children and so forth. And so there was always something really interesting that went on before we went into the park. And then we'd step through this door onto Main Street, and it was there you were, right in the middle of everything. <laughs> and been backstage with, with the, the, the cast members and, and getting a, a chance to chat. There wouldn't have been that many characters at that stage, or would there? Oh, they had, I think they had a person in a Mickey Mouse costume from the very beginning. Be, yes, right. But if you look, you know, there's. I'm sure there's a somewhere online where you can find the evolution of that <laughs> yes, guy. Exactly. And it was really changed over the years. And so Mickey Mouse in those days was just a, a small person in a suit. Mm. And a big head that he took off when he was taking his coffee break. So I was able to see him without his head <laughs> yeah. from time to time. It was a very jarring experience for yes, a young child. Yes, it would be. Yes, it would. <laughs> and, and on top of it, you know, the characters don't speak because they, you know, you can't know that they'll mm. have the right voice. And in those days, um, he was he was a, a grown man. I mean, he was a, a small man, but he was a grown man. And he talked like this. <laughs> <laughs> so he would see my grandmother and he'd say, Edna, Edna, so glad to see you. And Ray asked Abigail when she became aware of the public perception of her family. It is a slow dawning. You really don't. And I went to a high school where everybody's family was sort of in the business, most people's anyway. And so, you know, that 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 delayed my dawning. It wasn't until I like went away to college and people started asking me weird questions about whether or not my grandfather or uncle was frozen in the freezer and things like that. <laughs> I, you know, you start to realize that people know things about your family, which isn't normal, and that they're kind of fascinated with you, which isn't normal. And that's when it started to dawn on me that this was a weird life I was born into. That's interesting that they know things about yeah. you and they've never met you before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, how did you react as a teenager to that or as a young adult? Um, well, 18, 19, 20, when I was in college, I, of course, uh, wanted anything but that. And so I kind of sometimes lied and said I wasn't related when people asked me. I dressed Horribly, <laughs> you know, I did purposely I, horribly. Yes, right. I did. I did. I did. When I started grad school at, in New York City, I would get out of the cab six blocks early so nobody would see me taking a taxi because I just didn't want people to think I was a spoiled girl. Yeah, and you came into an awful lot of money when you were eighteen and set up for life, really. And set up for life, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Which is which is a weird position to be in at a time when. Most people are trying to decide what their life is going to be. And money, of course, figures into that. It's not the only thing that makes your decision for Mm. you. But at a time when you're deciding what your livelihood and what your calling is, um, everything is optional. And that's a strange that's a strange coming of age. It is, because for a lot of people, money is important and their life choices and their career choices are often dictated by Earning, earning money. You didn't have to consider that. Yeah, um, exactly. So, so what were you playing around with in your head then, what you wanted to do with your life? Well, I, I didn't have filmmaking in my head because yeah. it felt like um, I would only be compared mm. and um, that just felt like a nightmare to me. So I had no idea, really. Honestly, as part of the reason after college I came here, I, I just wanted to spend a year earning the roof over my head. I wanted something really, really, really straightforward um, to do that showed me that I 
was capable of doing this thing I would never have to do. Um, it was something I had to prove to myself. Mm. Um, and then I went back to graduate school, which is what you do when you have no idea what you're going to do. I, I did have in my head when I started grad school that I'd love to be an English professor, you know, teaching literature somewhere someday. And so I finished a Ph.D., and uh, that took me a lot of years, uh, about 10 years. And by the time I'd done that, I'd had a couple children and I was going to have a couple more. So by that time, I was mostly home with my kids and doing lots of work as a volunteer. And um, just to go back a little bit, at what stage in your life did you realize that money doesn't make you happy? <laughs> no, because, be, you know, from the outside, I suppose, people looking in. Oh, yeah. So the Disney empire and all the Disney families as, you know, happy, 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 smiley. Um, but that wasn't the case. Oh, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting phenomenon. I mean, I went to this weight loss program and everybody in the weight loss program had five or 10 or 15 or 20 pounds or whatever. And then when they lost those 20 pounds, everything was going to be fine. <laughs> and and yeah. people almost universally treat money the same way because it's such a constant nagging worry for most people. It's the first problem. But actually, you always ha- you always have a hundred other problems. Um, but it's easy to pile everything on top of that first obvious thing mm. and make that into the magic thing that will make everything okay. People with money have all the same problems. They have addiction. They have marriage problems. They have personality problems. They argue too much. They lose their temper too much. All of the things that happen to people um, regular, ordinary, everyday people happen to people with money. And, and there are some things that money actually makes worse. Addiction, if you, you know, go look at a People magazine or whatever your gossip magazine is there, I don't remember. There's a hundred stories in there about the rich person mm. with the drinking problem or the drug problem. And, and the problem is those people don't have people around them who will tell them the truth about what's going on with them. And they don't have to do what they do in almost any recovery program, which is to admit that they're helpless. And Abigail spoke about both her parents' alcoholism. Sadly, I hate to say that here because they loved being here and they wouldn't want people to think ill of them. But I I say it honestly because the, the, the secrecy is so damaging. And the shame around it is so damaging. And I don't think there's shame in it. No. I think it's a problem people have um, that, that it would be so much easier to confront if it didn't feel so awful to confront it. Have you tried to understand the, your mom and dad's addiction? I, I'm just wondering, because well, you said already that you didn't want to go into filmmaking because mm-hmm. fear yeah. of being compared. Yeah. So there was your dad, Roy, you know, the son of Roy, n- nephew of Walt, mm-hmm. um, and, and he was in the same business. Was, yeah. I wonder, was that a struggle for him? It, oh, it, it certainly was, and I and I know it contributed to his problem for sure. Mm. He he went to work every day with a whole set of concerns that most people don't have, and it was he knew, and it was known around the company that Walt didn't really have much respect for him. And so most of the people who really loved Walt, and it did divide up, unfortunately, into people who really loved Walt and people who really loved my grandfather, um, tended to not think well of my father. And so imagine what that takes character-wise to show up for work every day uh, under those circumstances. Soul-destroying. Yeah, it is. And, you know, he eventually went on his own and he created his own investment vehicle and did very well and made a few films on his own. Um, and I think that was really good for him. I wish I wish he'd done it younger, um, mm. so he didn't have to spend so much of his life in that soul crushing every day. 
thing. Uh, so, to the documentary then, we've established who you are, where you're <laughs> from. Uh, the documentary is called The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. You don't name Disney in the title. Was that on purpose? Oh, oh very much on right. purpose. Um, although, you know, the, the castle's right there on the, on the, yes. <laughs> on the poster, yeah. so it's, not, it's no secret. And um, <clears throat> I think it really, I wanted it to be about American companies and and the full American dream because this isn't just a Walt Disney problem. This is the problem mm. across the board with American business culture. So when did you become uncomfortable and questioning of the empire that had given you your life? Um, you know, I was I was always uncomfortable. I mean, I, you know, I came here to work as a nanny because yes. I was uncomfortable. Yes, okay. You know, it felt funny to not have to do the thing everybody else was doing and you know it's it just feels really unfair and um so the unfairness i you know i'm a third of four children and then middle children we tend to be obsessed with what's fair so i i did just always have that as a, as a seed kind of like in in the oyster working its way and covering mm. covering covering with other layers of concern and i got very involved in my late 20s and 30s into the politics of inequality and sort of like how, well, so how does a person like me do the right thing given the way they've been situated on the earth? Um, and, and so that's when I became kind of more versed in what the issues were, for instance, around homelessness in New York City and things like that and why um, it was the way it was. It, you know, and that's what led me inextricably back to making this film because, you know, I couldn't pretend that I, there was no... Um, that I didn't have any power to say something. Yes. Abigail Disney from The Ray Darcy Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, a preview of the World Cup in Qatar. Sean Ingle of The Guardian was talking to Claire from Doha. Sean, good morning to you. You've been there for the last few days. What's the atmosphere like? Well, there isn't really much of an atmosphere at the moment, except um, by those generated from uh, basically the Indian expats that live in Doha and have adopted um, their support of England, of Brazil and and Argentina. So we've seen them now and again banging their drums and, and, and cheering along. They were singing It's Coming Home as, as the England players arrived at the hotel the other night. But in terms of um, fans from host countries that have come over, um, there's no sign of them yet on the ground. Yeah, there, I mean, there's some controversy around those fans that you've just described. The Qatar Supreme Committee denying accusations that they're paid fake football fans who are there at the finals. What have you been hearing about that? Well, I've spoken to a lot of these fans and they are legit. They, they're essentially, again, they're of Indian origin. They, they were born in India. They've come and worked here. And the Indian football team isn't very good. And they've grown up watching the Premier League and, and Messi and Ronaldo. So they've adopted these countries. But where there perhaps is some confusion is the Qatari Supreme Committee is also paying groups of fans from the 32 countries to fly over and say nice things about the tournament mm. um, in exchange for essentially a free a free trip out here. Okay. So that might be where there is some confusion. Well, I think we can listen to these so-called England fans. They greeted the English team as they arrived at their base. Let's have a listen. doesn't sound, Sean, like the version of It's Coming Home that we would usually be used to, does it? 
It, it's not, but um, it was quite quite sweet and endearing. And over the years, I've stood next to a large number of the more vociferous England groups singing songs about 10 German bombers and, and the IRA. And frankly, I'd prefer to hang out with with these fans than, mm-hmm. than some of the more um, riotous England fans I've, okay. I've encountered down the years. And it's just interesting that you've spoken to many of them, you say, and you are convinced that they are legit. Yeah, the, the, almost all of them from a region in South India called Kerala, which um, uh, in which football is 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 nearly as popular as, as cricket. And uh, they were mechanical engineers, they were IT workers. I quizzed them about their knowledge of the Premier League um, and they were very good. Um, perhaps most interesting as well, after England team has arrived, we'd written our stories. Myself and a colleague went to a, a restaurant and, and just ordered some food. And a bunch of them were still walking up and down, sort of chanting away, away from the cameras, away from the public eye, um, just because they were very excited. And Mm -hmm. I think if they were hired hands, I don't think they would have been doing that. Okay, and also controversy I just saw last night um, when pictures emerged of the fan zone, of the accommodation on the of the at the fan zone. I know you've seen some of the videos that we have seen here too. It looked pretty basic. Um, yeah, I was there um, yesterday for the media launch of that, um, and it was it was like a big, vast car park. Um, there is only one beer stall, um, which will set people back uh, um, about twelve um, English pounds um, to, for a beer. And uh, but they've done it in such a way that there will be a very long, snaking sort of walk walk to get there. So I don't think that will impress many fans. Um, it was very, very hot as well. It was in the nineties. I would say, though, that in the evening they hosted a Michael Jackson impersonator and they invited 20,000 people along to that. And it was, there was much more of an atmosphere and it was cooler. And you can imagine actually being somewhere you'd want to go. Um, mm-hmm. But if your, your chances of getting a drink are pretty low, I'd imagine, given the long queues that so were there. one bar charging £12 sterling for a, a beer. What about food? Can you buy food there? You, you can indeed, but uh, I tasted the, uh, 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 I had a, a margarita pizza and that would set you back about eight pounds sterling for a slice and it was pretty poor. And, and the Greek salad um, had some lettuce that, to put it kindly, remember those images of, of Liz Truss versus the, the Daily Star <laughs> lettuce? It looked a little like that, if I'm being absolutely honest, and that would be be similar a similar price. So um, I, I think yeah, don't drink, don't um, don't don't uh, eat nice food, but but have a, try and have a nice time regardless if you go to a FIFA fan zone. Okay, and when you do get to the bar, I read there's a limit of uh, four beers per person. In, indeed, as well. Um, so uh, I think there'll have to be some quite strategic planning um, if you are planning to plan to do that. And Claire asked Sean how he thinks this World Cup will go. And what do you think of the uh, people on Twitter who responded to the to your own report? I think it was when they said the World Cup is going to be the fire festival and Woodstock '99 rolled into one. I let's wait and see. I think it will be a very different World Cup. It doesn't necessarily mean it will be a terrible one. A, a, we are almost probably having to juggle a number of balls up in the air at the same time. You know, one eye on the football inevitably, but also on things like the workers' rights, the um, the LGBT rights, how Qataris respond to um, public displays of affection, people having fun. They, they are not used to having um, seeing fans drink, and um, they've been on training courses. There, there's large numbers of Turkish and Pakistani police that have come over but they've been given training courses on how Western fans act at games and sort of, you know, if, if they're singing and they're having a drink, 
don't don't go up to them. That's fine. You know, mm-hmm. And I think there will be this. There, there's a potential for cultural uh, misunderstandings there. So we're just going to have to see how how it goes. Yeah, I mean, maybe that was what was behind what we saw with the Danish TV crew, um, and people may have seen them being threatened whilst broadcasting. We can have a listen here, Sean, to how these events unfolded. Mister, you invited the whole world to the you you invited the whole world to come here. Why can't we film? It's a public place. This is the uh, accreditation. Okay. We can film anywhere we want. Okay. There are only, of course. No, no, no. We don't need permit. No, no. But 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 no, but listen, but listen, but listen. But you can break the camera. You want to break the camera? Okay, you break the camera. Okay. So you're threatening us by 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 smashing the camera. Now, that's particularly interesting for you and your colleague, Sean, because, you know, that situation could arise again. Are you wary now? I, I, I'm always wary, you know. <laughs> we, we bring phones and laptops here. Uh, I, was, I was chatting to some human rights people that sort of warn that journalists are, you know, are under surveillance or that at least there's the threat. So you, you are looking constantly around you. Um, although at the same time, it's also, I think, very, very safe for the ordinary public. And um, what's quite interesting, though, they have a very compliant population here. Just to give you one example, I was um, I was just on the Conish yesterday and um, suddenly we, you know, the police sort of shouted us, stay still, don't move. Um, and there was a bunch of us and it turned out we had to sort of stand still for a couple of minutes and then some cars of very important people clearly drove by a very long distance. We must have been 50, 60 metres away from them. And 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 a few of us were sort of saying, why, you know, why are we doing this? And someone else, a local, said, well, this is this is how the, the locals act, you know, and this is they sort of used to sort of this happening, and they just do what they're told. And I wonder whether England England fans have had a few, and something like that happens, you may not oh. uh, find so fans. You were asked fire. to stand still as a mark of respect for the these dignitaries who are travelling through. Well, I think I think just to sort of make sure there was no way we could get anywhere near them. Perhaps mm-hmm. it was it was very unclear. But there was one guy that well sort of was walking, and and a policeman scrambled over and you know jabbing the finger and pointing that way, and no, 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 no. And then um, again, it's they, they were absolutely you know at miles away, you know, fifty, sixty meters from where we were standing. Yeah, it would make you wonder how it is all going to play out when the fans start to arrive. We should say the Danish TV crew they did get an apology, so clearly there's an awareness. Aware there that there are difficulties to be uh, ironed out. Are, are you looking forward to the football? That is a very good question. Um, yes, I think so. I mean, the, the, the things that perhaps um, are encouraging, the, the stadium technology, which is costing an absolute fortune, but it does mean that it will games will be played in 20, 21 degree heat and not the 32 degrees it currently is in, in Doha. So we should hopefully get fast, interesting football. The players are, are, you know, less than halfway through the season. So you imagine their fitness levels will be much higher than if the tournament was played in June or July. So hopefully the football will be good. Um, the rest of it, let, let's wait and see. Sean Ingle from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Dr. Michael Barron is one of Ireland's foremost LGBT plus activists and human rights campaigners. He's the founder of Belong To and the Rowan Trust. Ryan began by asking Michael about his thoughts on the controversial upcoming World Cup in Qatar. I'm going to talk, I'm going to work backwards to from, from what's happening today and then go, go into what you've been up to and what's happening. Just your, okay. your, your thoughts, if you don't mind, on the Qatar World Cup. Sure. <laughs> I was saying this to your researcher, I actually know very little about football, first that, off. Just that's okay. If the, if the question was about the Eurovision, I might know a little bit more. <laughs> but, You're such a cliche, but, Michael. <laughs> no, but it's the 
truth. Come on, go on. Uh, but they, yeah, look, I mean, I, I think the international community endorsing regimes that have a, an appalling human rights record is, is, is not okay, you know. And I think if we look at Qatar, but it, it, that's uh, obviously keenly the case when it comes to migrants, workers, women, LGBT people, uh, freedom of press, freedom of civil society organizing. But I, I do also think that we could look closer to home as well, you know, and I think we need a kind of a rounded view of this. You know, Qatar aren't alone with these issues, you know. If mm-hmm. you look at as Europe in terms of the number of migrants who are dying, dying in the Mediterranean every year, if we look at what's going on in Italy and Sweden, and also if we even look at home in terms of the treatment of migrant workers, if we look at the conversations about trans people, on our airwaves every day these days, if we look at how the government is treating civil society, there are serious kind of human rights issues in Ireland too that are like canaries in the, in the coal mine, and when they go, lots of other things fall fall as well, you know. So, so I, I think it's fine to absolutely uh, uh, call attention to 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 Qatar, and it's important, and boycotting is important. It works, you know, but I think it also is important to take the moment to hold a, a mirror up to ourselves as well. It is it is extraordinary, uh, isn't it, within the European family, quote unquote, to see the far right, I would argue, being normalised in Italy and Sweden and Hungary. Um, and this is, uh, is, is this a slow climb in that direction or are these anomalies, I wonder? I, I think it really looks like it's a slow climb in that direction. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, it's not unstoppable, of course, you know, and there are you know, uh, really strong movements against it happening. But I, I think it does take a concerted effort. Um, and I think if we look at the far right in Ireland, you know, we do have a far right that are actively campaigning against migration, that are actively campaigning against trans and LGBT rights. I mean, we've had violence on the streets. We've had, like, really vicious attacks on trans people here. And I think somehow we are treating these like they are, they are anomalies, but they aren't. You know, they're part of a broader international far-right movement and groups are linked together. Um, so movements in, in Italy are linked together with movements in Ireland and movements in Sweden, you know, so so it does take a much more concerted effort to, to, to stop this. Okay, that, 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 um, that sums that up neatly. I think ultimately the Qatar experience is worth analysing and um, reflecting on, but with a view to keeping an eye on closer to home. That's what I started the programme with, by saying we beware of being too sanctimonious, looking at others when we've a bit of a mirror holding to do ourselves. Yes, exactly. Okay, l- let me ask you a bit about yourself, Michael, um, because how many brothers and sisters do you have? Oh, I'm the youngest of six, yeah, so I grew up in a, in a, a big, large Catholic family yeah. in uh, rural Kilkenny uh, through the, the 70s, 80s and into, into the 90s. Yeah, and so a, lot, a lot of them headed for overseas, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. So so in the 80s, um, when Ireland was a, a very difficult place, as you, you'll remember for many people, mm. um, four of my older siblings emigrated to America and to England. Um, yeah, which as, as, a, as a child, which I was at the time when it began, um, it was a really devastating, heartbreaking, heart-wrenching experience. You know, I often think of the, my mother, my poor mother was absolutely devastated to have the majority of her children have to leave um, during that time. Um, and it was simply because of the, the economy, our own situation, there was no work to be had. Um, and we were, we were a nation of, of immigrants and and I think also when I, when I think of some of the people who were around at the time and things that were happening, you know, 
it was the depths of eighties when the and lovers died and the curry babies were happening mm. or happened, excuse me, when the Eighth Amendment was introduced. And then closer to home where I lived, the Eileen Flynn case, um the who was a wonderful friend of the family actually was fired from her post as a teacher in the Holy Faith Convent in New Ross. Um, and of course, lost her her case in the in the High Court in 1985, and we would have been keenly aware of this this happening around the same time. So it, Ireland in general wasn't a terribly welcoming place, particularly for a young person who was coming to terms with their sexuality and and knowing as well, of course, that Ireland wasn't going to be an accepting place to come out as gay. And of course, homosexuality was decriminalised until 1993 when I was an, an, an adult. And Ryan asked Michael about coming out himself. Um, tell me wh- when and where you came out, if you don't mind me asking. No problem, yeah. So I, I went to, I moved to Dublin at 17 with all intentions of coming out um, soon, but uh, it, it really wasn't uh, at the time or I didn't really feel the, the support to do that. And I actually came out in New York, which is very glamorous. Uh, on a J. Wood visa, uh, myself and my good friend Tom uh, went over there when I was 21 yeah. and uh, to the bright lights, big city of East Village in New York, which was a really wonderful place what to a, be. What a great, 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 funky, interesting part of New York that is. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. I remember coming out of the subway in the East Village and walking into the middle of uh, a number of, of gay bars. There was a bar called Wonder Bar and there was Lots of gay people spilled out onto the street, and it was a balmy summer night, and it was just like really exciting. It was just felt like I'd arrived, and this is where I was always supposed to be. So uh, coming out was very easy to, to to do there. What What about the bit before that, though? When you were a young lad, maybe at school, and then did you say heading to seventeen, and then heading to college, and still not feeling I I, I can do it yet. Is it, it must be very hard to hold on to that. Secret isn't the right word I'm trying to think of, but mm. but that's a lot of 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 soul to be hiding. Yeah, it was um, Ryan, to be honest, and and it is still for a lot of young people. Um, sure. Yeah, it, it really was, and I and I think one of the things that's happened here in, in in Ireland is that young people feel safer to come out at a much younger age, and that's really positive, you know. Um, but in terms of my own experience, yeah, I was. I mean, you know, at that age, you get when you don't know what to do and you feel very isolated, you do get lost in many things like drinking too much and partying too much and not getting out of bed and all those things that you know now as an adult are kind of warning signs of something not being quite right, but you kind of find find a way to, 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 to hide it, really, you know. Um, and, and also, if, for me, moving to Dublin, I went, I went to Trinity, actually, where I met David Norris uh, in my first year and he was really wonderful, but... But I also experienced a huge amount of classism um, when I moved to Dublin too. You know, so I was a young gay guy from the country at 17 coming into Trinity College where yeah. most people were upper middle class from Dublin or Northern Ireland or England and kind of finding a space in there was, was, was quite difficult. I did manage to find a space outside, by the way, you know, so yes. in terms of going to New York and then also in terms of discovering the burgeoning gay scene in Dublin, which was very exciting actually in the late 90s. What does, um, what does classism look like, as you saw it? Yeah, so uh, classism at that time, for, for me now, I'll just think back at that time, and rather than give you an intellectual answer, but yeah. for me at that time, uh, it felt very much like a, a closed club. It felt very much like a privilege that was discussed in terms of where people went on holidays and, you know, uh, like their connections to, uh, like, you know, the, they'd all been to private schools. They talked about that. They talked mm. about... 
their families, they had money, they didn't work where you know, when I left home I you know, always worked. We didn't have any 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 resources to fall back on and So two different and planets really. There were two really different yeah. planets, you know. Yeah. We had to scrape to get by, um, whereas others didn't, you know, basically. I, I suspect that's yeah. that's not uncommon today um, yeah. still. But let me ask you then, just that, that picture you paint of New York, and I think you're probably out towards St. Mark's Square thereabouts, and the yes. sun is shining, and it's perpetually <laughs> hot and summery, and there's all sorts of, as you say, bars to go to. Uh, New York then became something of a leveller for you, because no one cares what school you went or what accent you have. You just... Just be yourself. Exactly, you know, and in truth, you being exotic as well. Oh, yeah, you know? well, there is that, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, and exactly, and I think that it was just such a great feeling of, you know, racial equality as well, which, of course, you know, isn't really the case, but within that gay environment at that time, that was the sense, you know, so we're going from the environment in Trinidad that I mentioned to an environment where, you know, making friends with Puerto Rican people and... Um, you know, Mexican people who were drag queens and trans community. You know, there was such a mix and a variety and vibrant. A, a typical day uh, in Kilkenny, uh, Main Street, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Michael spoke about getting involved in setting up Belong To. I became involved in activism in the late 90s, having been to New York as well. Um, but when I came back and I was living in the north inner city in Dublin and there was a lot of racist graffiti um, in the area because it was a general election to remember at that time and it was the beginning of this backlash against um, migrant people coming to Ireland, particularly uh, Romanian people. And in a fairly naive way, I contacted the Refugee Council um, to ask if there was something I could do. Mm. Um, and so I ended up teaching English to children and young people from migrant families. Um, at the time, actually, it was mostly Romanian families and Angolan families due to uh, one of the wars that was happening in Angola. Um, and part of what was going on there was I was invited into people's houses to 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 teach English and I just really fell in love with doing the work I really enjoyed it um, and I really enjoyed the cultural exchange and and actually I felt a real affinity to the families you know because of my own experience of emigration you know and movement and mm. you know knowing that my sisters in England really struggled to make ends meet when they had to emigrate in the 80s and there was such a similarity happening I, I really really I really got it on an emotional level um, and because of that I went back to university and studied um, youth and community work in Maynooth. And when I came back out, started working in homeless services with with uh, Focus Ireland. And what we were seeing there was that uh, a good number of young people who were coming into homeless services were LGBT. Um, and it was a kind of, again, it was like the turn of the millennium. So it was quite unsafe for many people to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I had a very progressive manager called Jean and, and and she would often ask me to key work the young LGBT person that would come in because I was out as gay and, and others weren't. Uh, and that kind of planted a seed um, in terms of my journey towards establishing Belong To. Um, and then I moved over and started to work with the Gay Men's Health Project with a brief around youth. And then a number of us came together. Um, and there was quite a bunch of quite radical people came together with a really kind of quite radical social change agenda. There was a wonderful woman Fran McFay, who unfortunately passed away this year, who's from Belfast, and she was coming with a really strong working class uh, analysis, and I was coming with a really strong LGBT queer analysis, and and so we set up Belong To as a as a really a social change organisation. It wasn't ever intended to be a youth group, you know. It was intended to to change Irish society so that being LGBT was completely normal. 
And that, you, the Equate campaign to remove the baptism barrier then was the next phase of your life, and uh, and now we're into the the Rowan Trust. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so the Rowan Trust is what um, we're doing at the moment, yeah. and 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 it's a, an independent foundation that uh, supports organisations working with communities who are really on the margins. Um, so we do we support the Migrant Rights Centre. Interesting, like we were talking about Qatar earlier on, the treatment mm-hmm. of migrants. But we support the Migrant Rights Centre and their work to help meat packers um, who are mostly migrants organise because of the poor working conditions and domestic workers organise. And of course, they were centrally involved and the driving force behind the regularisation scheme for migrant, um, migrant people uh, just this year. Um, and we also then support organisations that really, our interest really is in organisations that put people's voices front and centre, you know, so we, we really are interested in traveller traveller speaking for themselves, LGBT people speaking for themselves and, and changing that political na- landscape and narrative landscape um, so work with like the Uplift, who do a lot of political awareness training with minority communities is really core because um, right, right, there is, there is, I have this really strong belief, and it's not my saying, it comes from somebody else, but it's that really basic piece that people closest to the struggle are closest to the solution. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think in Irish government policy and, and even in media conversations, that we often have conversations about people on the margins. But actually, if you let people on the margins talk for themselves, they inevitably have the answers to what the problem is. Dr. Michael Barron from The Ryan Tupperty Show. And on the live line, Dermot called Joe about antisocial behaviour after an incident he witnessed at the GPO. Dermot Kirwan, it's yesterday morning, you're uh, on O'Connell Street in Dublin, uh, you're uh, at the GPO, but you're in the GPO. And what happened, Dermot? Well, Joe, I was in the GPO and, uh, well, first of all, I heard lots of racket and noise from just outside the GPO. I went into it. Uh, to get my stamps, and uh, basically there's a significant number of um, drug addicts were arguing among themselves and screaming and roaring across the entire length of that um, lovely hall. Uh, And I saw trading. I saw little blister packs of tablets being exchanged for money. Uh-huh. Uh, they dumped two of their bicycles in the hall, in the hall itself, one of them just in front of the crib, and... There was a lot of bewildered and some frightened people there. Um, and that's just, that's not a new situation, Joe. I've been coming in here uh, for quite a while, for years, and certain days of the week, it's out of control. Um, and, 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 and that's it, Joe. That's just you're saying, but you're saying, hang on, there was open drug dealing inside the GPO, and that's in, that, yes. in the main yes. concourse, which is so familiar to anyone in 1916 and the images then the GPO was rebuilt almost exactly as it was uh, after it was shelled by the British and set on fire um, so it's not, it's not a historic uh, concourse you've seen open drug dealing yes I have Dur- um, during daylight out- daylight yeah, I've often seen it outside. Well, that's Dermot there. Then Anna McHugh, Head of Communications with On Post, was talking to Joe. We're well used to on Liveline talking about antisocial behaviour on O'Connell Street. But now, is this the first time you've heard of such open drug dealing inside the GPO? Joe, it's it's extremely challenging. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Um, okay. And unfortunately, in recent years and 
probably say particularly in recent months, um, it has reached a new level in in the general area. Very difficult for everyone, for all the businesses and for customers coming in. That said, there is, I'd say you're probably within the GPO and one of the, the safest places in the city because of the amount of security. Mm. We have our own um, uniformed, very professional, experienced yeah. security staff. There are plainclothes Gardaí patrolling. There are uniformed Gardaí. And there isn't an inch of that public post office that isn't on very clear um, and working cameras. Um, yesterday, there was an issue yesterday. So, so just, just, just Anna, so yesterday, whoever was drug dealing, Dermot, what time was it that you saw the drug dealing, the open drug not, dealing in not, the GP? Just, just, before, just before 9.30, Joe. OK, so you can look at the cameras, can yeah. you, Anna? We can indeed, and indeed we, 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 we regularly look at cameras and supply footage to the Gardaí. Yesterday morning we had an issue with a, with a safe, and it was a busy social welfare morning, yeah. and that slight delay, as uh, slight as it was, but it gave rise. Fortunately, you know, when you're dealing with customers who are in addiction, um, Mm-hmm. You know, it's particularly challenging but you any can't, sort of delay. But Anna, you can't say the queue was long, so drug dealing broke out. Oh no, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that um, you know there was there was some tension in the office, but our security staff mm-hmm. move on people. People are not allowed to loiter around, okay. and certainly they would uh, confront and move on anybody who's attempting either to deal drugs, mm-hmm. take drugs. Or indeed, uh, you know, you've unofficial money lenders, you've all kinds of things, and um, that they would, you know, they move people on. But they can't be everywhere. There's, there's money. There's, there's money lenders using the GPO concourse. Well, no, I'm not saying GPO, but in the area okay. of the GPO, and um, people would be familiar with that as well. So their job is to look after the customers, to be that yeah, human course, yeah. but also to move people on. And we would never allow that to happen. But in fairness, our people, skilled as they are, and there was three of them on duty yesterday morning, mm-hmm. they can't be absolutely everywhere. And a lot of drugs, drug exchanges happen very quickly. Um, so unfortunately, people would see that happening on O'Connell Street. So it does happen in the GPO? Sorry, I, I don't know that it happens. I haven't okay. seen it. Um, okay. But And it's, it, that's, that's something new, in fairness. We have other levels of antisocial behaviour, people in distress, people in, yeah. in, in all sorts of medical or, or psychological distress. But drug dealing within the office is not something that we have, have seen um, or are seen on a regular basis. Um, people coming in on bikes, the whole new scourge of people on bikes, uh-huh. And groups of young people on bikes, that's that's another issue. Again, they're not allowed to just dump bikes course, there, but yeah. they will try to. Um, it would be wrong to make out that it's completely out of control or that, that that's a regular occurrence because uh-huh. of all that's done by the Gardaí as well to, you know, to prevent it and to curtail it and to move it on. But there's no, there's absolutely no doubt that there is a serious issue within the city, one that um, City Council and Garthi, um and all the businesses are trying to deal with. And, I mean, it's heartbreaking um, for somebody but like how, myself who's been but, decades but, 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 coming but, but, in and out of the Hang on a sec. You, 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 you say... Uh, we could go through any Liveline archive and there's antisocial behaviour in O'Connor Street in the last uh, seven or eight years... Um, one, what's been done about it, and two, you say, you said earlier that it's actually got worse as far as the GPO is concerned in the last three or four months. 
certainly around the area yeah, okay. of the GPO, the streets around it. So what are the Gardaí, the city area? council, doing to There's improve it? If it's, whatever they're doing is not much use because it's got worse. Well, I think it's challenging for everybody. And um, certainly we've seen um, a big increase in uniform Gardaí in recent times, mm-hmm. particularly as there's more people back in the city after yeah. COVID. You know, that kind of, that, those two years were very challenging, um, I think, for, for the city. And, uh, you know, the, a, a, there was a lot more antisocial behaviour and drug-related activity happening. Mm-hmm. But as there's more people back in work now and there's more people mm-hmm. coming in you know, to shop and, I suppose, resume some level of normality. Anna McHugh there. Then Liz called Joe about things she witnessed at the GPO. I've seen open drug dealing, money exchanging hands and um, them then handing them the drug, whatever it is. Uh, I also, I volunteer in Sweeney's on Lincoln Place. Yeah, Sweeney's, yeah. The, Sweeney's, James, you know Yeah, well. James Joyce, um, yeah. Ulysses, Lemon Soap. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. you were innocent to do that. Yeah, but I stand outside the door to have a cigarette. Well done, okay. And I see them uh, on uh, Western Row, uh, openly drug dealing, and uh, down at the shop, central shop, they're there all the time and they're asking you for money and they're hassling you. And uh, I've called the police numerous times. I saw a woman being uh, knocked down and her mobile phone taken off her. And we brought her in and gave her a cup of tea. I've called the guards and I'm wasting my time. And I think also uh, on most museums or places like the GPO, in other countries they'd have guards standing outside the door. Mm. And I think it's an absolute disgrace but to think that our forefathers fought for our freedom and this is what is going on. Is, is three uh, staff enough in the concourse, Anna? Um, well, you yeah, know, yeah. normally we'd have, you know, two to three staff on and that's covering queuing areas and the entrances. Um, it's it's something we look at and certainly coming up as there's more customers in the building coming up to Christmas, mm-hmm. uh, we will, you know, we we extend that and we, we add in more staff at peak times. Um, but I suppose a whole city response is really needed on something like this. I because, think, you know, uh, your people just, with no disrespect, standing outside the door, but I think a uniformed policeman or uh, somebody like that should be standing outside the door. Well, we have uniformed police outside, Gardaí outside, um, often inside, uh, as well as plainclothes. Um, yeah. Gardaí as well. Sorry, not I, don't, I, I, don't. There. I didn't see any. Okay. I, I, I saw no guards at all. Neither did I. Neither did I. Well, are they? Are they? Are you saying there's plain clothes Gardaí on a, in the GPO at all opening hours? Inside? Not at all opening hours. No, they're not there all opening hours, but they're certainly regular. You know, they okay. do regular um, patrols, Joe, if you like. Joe, if I could just say, Damn, Joe, all they have it, to yes. be, the guards need to be there every Tuesday and Wednesday. When these poor people are picking up their money, the lady mentioned money lending. Ah, it's no, money yeah. extortion. That's the problem. Yeah. Sorry, what, what, what's, it, the, what's the money? I'm confused now about money lending. Well, they're taking cash away and they're being threatened and sometimes attacked on their way home from getting their money. Then Chris called Joe. Um, what, what, what have you witnessed? Well, look, first of all, thanks a for taking me call. I was driving yeah. down the road and when, they, when it came up as a subject, I just had to pull into the road. I felt compelled to bring it up. The, the, the GPO O'Connell Street is the centre of drug dealing in Dublin, OK? But you can have 
500 Gardaí on that street mm-hmm. and the drug dealing will still continue. The, the, the problem that we have here, and I think a lot of people were horrified by RTE's documentary a month ago. The images, yeah, the images. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. To, to see it being there and so visible. But like when I, I come from the city centre, right, and throughout my life, I have lost friends continually to, to drugs, okay, continually. Yeah. And the thing is, when you look at it, and the country is so horrified because they see this out on O'Connell Street, we've been living amongst this for the last 30 years, yeah. right? It's, yeah. a, it's a dreadful, horrific situation, yeah. and the problem is, is very straightforward, Joe. The problem is, is it's a government-failed policy on drug use. We, we take mm-hmm. the Gardaí as if it's their job to fix this. It's not. It's the Gardaí's job to, 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 to enforce yeah, the yeah, laws around yeah, it. Yeah. You know, and when we look then at the condition of the street, it is absolutely horrific. It's, the, it's our main street, okay, and it's mm-hmm. a place that I would feel fearful. I, and I, I'm six foot two and 20 stone, and I would be afraid to walk up O'Connell Street on my own at night. I'd be very well, straight I, with you. I agree. Mm-hmm. I can remember when I was 17, 18, and... Um, we had to rush to get the last bus home or we'd be killed. But I can remember walking on my own down to get the 19A bus and I had no fear. I wouldn't walk down O'Connell Street if it was to save my life now. And no. a friend of mine and myself, we went to the Abbey and we parked near it and we came out and there was a whole load of undesirables and they were asking us for money and asking us. Yeah. And we thought we'd never get into the car. That's Liz on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, the death of Irish cameraman Pierre Zarczewski in Ukraine. His widow, Michelle Ross Stanton, was talking to Claire about his life and trying to piece together the details of his death. Last March, Irish cameraman and photographer Pierre Zakshevsky was killed in Ukraine alongside his Ukrainian colleague Alexandra or Sasha Kushinova. Now, Pierre grew up in Dublin in the suburb of Leopardstown and he was filming a report in the outskirts of Kiev when the vehicle himself and his colleagues were travelling in came under attack. Well, Pierre's wife, Michelle Ross Stanton, has worked tirelessly to try to piece together the events that led up to his death since she heard the news eight months ago. She's also working to keep Pierre's legacy alive through a number of different projects. I'm delighted to say that she joins me on the line now from London. Michelle, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about um, Pierre. First of all, we were very honoured to have his brothers with us here in the studio when the sad news emerged, Nick and Greg, and they spoke so poignantly of him. He sounded like an extraordinary person. Will you tell us more about him? Yes, he was. He was an incredible, kind, generous, passionate man. Um, There's so many stories about him. It's really difficult to know where to start. He was, I guess, first and foremost, a family man. He, Wherever he was in the world, he would always make sure to call his 11 nieces and nephews on their birthdays to wish them a happy birthday. And um, he always kept in touch with his family. And he was an entrepreneur, which uh, back in the late 80s in Ireland was how he funded his travels initially. Um, A funny story um, uh, that he told me was one Christmas in the late 80s, he was selling these giant three-metre cylindrical blow-up balloons that bounced. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) he was selling them on Henry Street. 
and a nun came along and she wanted to buy one, but she insisted that it was blown up. So off she walked down Henry Street with this giant three metre cylindrical balloon under her arm and you can imagine the looks the looks that she got this nun walking down Henry Street I'm sure but he was a, a people person and you have to be if you're working in the world that he was working in as a, as a photographer and a cameraman because you've got to arrive in a place where there is very, a very difficult situation and navigate your way through to get to the story Absolutely and he very much was a people person I don't think anybody he's ever met would ever forget him, um, apart from his moustache, which was famous in its own right. He was very proud of being Irish, and he used that Irishness to get him through checkpoints. And uh, the Irish are loved around the world. And uh, he, he would often, uh, like in Afghanistan, he would often rock up and say, my name's Pierre Zakchevsky and I'm Irish, let me through. And he'd end up with the Taliban sitting down having kebabs and tea. And Claire asked Michelle about hearing that Pierre was missing last March. Well, we go back to March last year when you, you got the call. The first call was to say that Pierre was missing, Michelle. Was that right? Yes. Yes. So the first call was March the 14th in the evening to say he'd been missing for five hours. And uh, I wasn't really too worried because, you know, he'd been missing before. And uh, and I thought, yeah, he'll show up. It's, you know, it's probably curfew. He's just hunkered down somewhere until curfew's over. And then I heard on the news that there was going to be a 36-hour curfew in, in Kiev. And, uh, and then I started getting worried. And so I started calling everybody I knew on the ground in, in Ukraine, uh, journalists that I've worked with, um, security people I've worked with, to see if they could help. And um, and it's a testimony to how much all the freelancers and all the other networks, everybody he met, loved him because they they rallied around and they did everything they could to try and find him. Um, and then I got a call at 12 hours to say that he was still missing. And um, that's when I realised that this was probably the end. Mm-hmm. And um, I spoke to his little sister and, and said... I think you should warn the family that this might be it. And then at 20 hours, I got the call to say that they'd found him in a morgue in Ukraine, in Kiev, and they had positively identified him. And uh, it was a real shock, you know, because he always, always came home. He had nine lives, he had the luck of the Irish. He, we never, ever, ever expected him not to come home. Mm-hmm. Um, and the precise details of what happened aren't known are they talk us through michelle what you what you do know about what happened well with we've got um an ongoing um i'm I, I, there's sort of certain things i can't really talk about um i've been working with jeremy barr at the washington post since april to try and piece together um what did happen and uh, he's an amazing architect uh, amazing journalist and he's been doing some wonderful research and i've been researching as well uh, but we have got an ongoing uh, war crimes tribunal in uh, france and working with the irish and i have to say the irish investigators have been incredible and there's also a, a murder inquiry going on in kiev um to to find out what happened um we know they were on their way back from a mission. It it, it wasn't, um, they weren't going to the front line. And uh, it seems that they were targeted at a checkpoint 
we believe by the Russians, but until the war crimes tribunals uh, are um, completed, we won't know for sure. Um, but we do know that the Russians were targeting journalists. Uh, Pierre had witnessed the day before he died a friend of his, Brent Renau, being shot in the neck at a checkpoint in Irpin, and Juan, the cameraman, being shot in the back. And that was he believed they were believed uh, by Russian snipers. Mm -hmm. So they, they knew they were being targeted, journalists. So we know, as I said, that um, Alexandra, the translator who was with Pierre, also died. Pierre yes. died, as we've been speaking about. And Benjamin, the reporter, was very seriously injured. Yes, yes. So her, uh, Sasha is um, what people call her. And she was actually their local producer. Had she lived, I know she would have been an amazing journalist. She lit up the room every time um, she walked in anywhere. She was passionate about um, helping and protecting her country. She, she loved music. Um, she, she was just full of life. And uh, in fact, her on-off boyfriend, Sviat, um, is planning on building a music centre in Kiev after the war uh, when they're rebuilding and also building a statue in her memory. And I'm trying to help him with that. And you were fortunate enough, and I, and I say that with all of the connotations that it has, to be able to go to Ukraine and b bring Pierre's body back. Sasha's family didn't get that. Yes, absolutely. And I, I am so very, very thankful to everybody that went above and beyond. I mean, it was just incredible. You imagine this is a this is a war. You know, this is an active war zone, and. Uh, I'm so thankful to Fox and the Irish Embassy in Poland and the US Embassy and the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ireland because they absolutely put superhuman effort in to get Pierre's body out of Kiev so quickly. We got him back in five days, which was just unheard of. Michelle Ross Stanton, widow of Irish cameraman Pierre Zarczewski from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.